Thanks, Chris, for sharing with us. <clears throat> Friends, Christians and churches who hold up the ideal, who hold up God's ideal, and pretend that brokenness isn't real, create a context within which families can't talk about their problems. Christians and churches who hold up the ideal and talk as if they themselves don't know struggle or brokenness or hurt or pain in their relationships create a culture where everybody knows you can't talk about that. (sighs) We must, we must hold up the ideal of what God intends for marriage as a context within which His goodness and glory are made known and His purposes are what matter and at the same time live in the tension that realizes that the reality is is that we're all broken people. And to act as if we're not doesn't help anybody. Which is, a, which is a big piece of what we need to talk about here in this Tell the Story series. We've been hearing the stories of quite a few folks who have had the courage to, to before all of you say, this is some of the brokenness that I've experienced. And here's some of my pain that I've experienced. Now listen, that's not the whole story. <laughs> we're, we're learning to tell the story so that as resurrected believers, as people who have the Holy Spirit in us, as people who are being made new, we tell the story with God as the hero. So that's the the journey we're sort of on here in this. And marriage and divorce is one of those key places where brokenness is is obvious and it's real and it's it's clear. I mean, like like Chris said in the video, it's like like that that fishbowl was was broken. (laughs) And everybody knew it and everybody saw it. Divorce is like that, isn't it? I mean, all all the people around us can see it and, and they know. That's why it's especially difficult. There are a number of factors uh, that contribute to it. We're not going to talk about a whole lot of those kinds of things. But I think one of the things we're going to touch on here, and, and Jesus talks about this in the passage here, is there is this ideal of what marriage is for and what it's about that we must get straight. We must understand that first before we talk about anything else. And this isn't just a problem out there, it's a problem in here, too. We've all experienced this. We've all been touched by it. Some of us have been through divorces personally. Some of us have experienced it in our families, like Chris talked about. Some of our extended families and our friends. If, if we added it all up here, every one of us in this room is touched by divorce at some, at some point. And part of the problem is the misunderstanding of what marriage is for. So we're going we're to talk about the ideal uh, that God intends for this relationship called marriage. L- let me demonstrate it this way. Let me talk about it this way. Let's talk about the definition of a contract. A contract is a legal agreement whereby two, por- two parties form a relationship that is contingent on both sides holding up to their side of the bargain. Okay? That's what a contract is. Let me say it again. It's, it's important for us to get this definition clear uh, before we move into Matthew 19 here. A contract is a legal agreement whereby two parties form a relationship that is contingent on both sides holding up their side of the bargain. If one side doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, 
They're part of the agreement. The other side can do away with the relationship. It's a breach of contract. The relationship can be terminated. That's how a lot of people think about a marriage relationship. Like there's this contractual agreement that's going on here. If one person sort of breaks their part of it, then the other person can leave and everything's cool, right? Like that's, like that's an option. Like that's how it works. But marriage in the scriptures is not talked about in those kinds of terms. It's not a legal contract. Marriage is a theological covenant. Meaning it's not our idea. It's not man's idea It is God's idea. And in a marriage covenant, the relationship does not depend on whether both sides of the marriage hold up to their side of the bargain. You don't go into a marriage saying, I will love you if you love me back. For the believer, and we have to get this straight, this is part of why this is a theological covenant and not a legal contract. For the believer in Jesus, extending the love of God to someone else is not contingent on whether the love is reciprocated. Let me say it again, because it may feel a little weird to hear me say that, but it's true. Extending the love of God for the believer to someone else is not contingent on whether that love is reciprocated enough. Marriage is a promise to continue extending God's love to someone else, even when it isn't reciprocated as expected. (laughs) I don't love you because you love me back. I love you because God made you, and He loves you, and God is love. And you have value and worth because you're made in His image regardless of what comes from you or vice versa. Now, a lot of people today talk about marriage, act in marriage as if it's a legal contract. Like if you don't uphold your part of the bargain, if you don't make me happy enough, if the financial security that's supposed to be there isn't, if, if my contentment isn't intact, then I'm, I, I get to go. Now, there are lots of other reasons perhaps why, why divorce can be a valid thing, a permissible thing, uh, but it's not something anybody seeks out. Nobody who goes through divorce says it's a good thing. You, you, you don't find people walking around saying, you know, choose divorce on their T-shirt. It's not like you're going to be hearing about a divorce pride parade happening soon. That doesn't happen. It's not a thing. Nobody goes into marriage thinking that's going to be what happens. Part of the problem is we don't understand God's ideal, his intent for marriage in the first place. And that's part of what Jesus is getting at in our passage today in Matthew 19. Got a lot of good scripture to talk about here. So I want you to jump in with me at Matthew 19, where where Jesus upholds the ideal of God's intent for marriage. That's primarily where we're going to focus today, and you'll see some of why from the text. Jump in with me at verse 3 there in Matthew 19. It says this, And Pharisees, Pharisees were the important Jewish group devoted to strict observance of the law, their interpretation of it, major players in the power structure of Jewish leadership in Jesus' day. And Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him, it says. This is something they did a lot with Jesus. They tried to test him and and sort of catch him in his words. 
try to catch him in his words, hoping that he'd say something wrong. They had been doing this a lot in Matthew, and they were doing it up here. In fact, they were turning up the heat on Jesus because he's about to turn to the cross. The crowds are excited and following him. That's in the previous verses there. They were hoping he'd say something wrong because this was a controversial question that they're about to ask him. They were threatened by Jesus. He was popular. They were in control. They felt threatened. And so they went straight for the jugular with Jesus in verse 3. They asked him this question. It says this. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now let's cover some background here before we move on. This question of what is permissible, what is a permissible cause for divorce, was a hotly, hotly debated topic among Jewish interpreters of the law, not just in Jesus' day, but for centuries uh, before. And this debate mostly centered around two words that we find in Deuteronomy 24, the first verse. There are other verses that apply to this. We're just going to look at Deuteronomy 24, 1, where we see this two-word phrase that is the hotly debated part. Deuteronomy 24 says this, Moses speaking. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency. This is a patriarchal society. The man made all the rules in the marriage. The two-word phrase there, some indecency, is the hotly debated phrase. If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, then etc. He could divorce her in basic terms. And there were two schools of thought about what constituted some indecency. Okay? The, the two schools of thought were permissible and strict, basically. Um, the, the more permissible side allowed for a whole bunch of reasons for divorce. The less permissible side basically accounted uh, for just sexual immorality and adultery, uh, that kind of thing. So, so on, the, on the very permissible side, it was things like as silly as the wife overcooking a meal. Boom, you could divorce her. So like if she overdid your toast, messed up the mac and cheese, you know, whatever it is, um, I've had it with you, lady, we're out of here. That sounds ridiculous, but that was permissible cause uh, for divorce. The less permissible side, the stricter interpretation, uh, as I alluded to earlier, was just things like sexual morality and adultery. So between those two, burning the toast and sexual infidelity, there's a huge range, right? Like, like, countless things could go in between those two schools of thought at the extreme. And it was debated in a way which these Jewish interpreters of the law, you know, could be over here or over here or right in the middle. So all along this continuum, different people had different ideas, but there were two main schools of thought. So when the Pharisees approach Jesus to test him and they ask him this, they're hoping he jumps into the fray of that debate and ends up taking a position that at least would make somebody mad. Because they haven't been able to catch Jesus in his words yet. He was gaining popularity. He's about to turn toward the cross. And it wouldn't have been difficult if he had taken a stance somewhere along this continuum for somebody to be upset with Jesus. So they bait him with this question in verse 3. Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Listen to his awesome answer. Verse 4. He doesn't even remotely take the bait. He says this. 
I love the way Jesus says this. Um, have you not read? They're Pharisees. Of course they've read. They've read it a bunch of times. They've just cited it. They know it well. But Jesus is hilarious here. Have you not read, Bible scholars, that he who created them from the beginning, in other words, he goes back to God's purpose in creation, which is where we're headed here. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He doesn't even actually answer the question a whole lot. He gives this awesome response. Do you not know, like, like how do you not know this? How do you not know that God's purpose is from the beginning? And he's alluding to Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.24. If you're taking notes, we'll look at look that later. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2.24, you're made in God's image, male and female, he created them. He says, have you not read <laughs> that he who created male and female from the beginning put them together for a particular purpose? And so he begins to sort of draw out what that purpose is, what God's intent is here in Matthew 19. So it says, have you not read he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, verse 5, therefore, in other words, in keeping with God's intent in creation, which he's alluding to here, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.24, God put them together, Adam and Eve, for the purpose of making God's glory known, be fruitful and multiply, which is more than just making babies. It's partly that, but it's letting God be in you to be made known to the world, to do what God did for us in creation. Therefore, because of all that intent, verse 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, he will leave his previous life and family, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become... One flesh. These two separate entities, man and woman, come together in a unity, verse 6, for the purpose of God's glory being made known. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. God's intent all along was that one biologically defined male and one biologically defined female, just throwing that in for you, would come together in a way that makes them different than they were before. That the purposes of God's goodness and glory being made known in them would find momentum and unity that goes beyond them and actually produces people. People who love God. Now, you don't have to be married to do that. You can be unmarried and produce people who love God. It's called disciple-making. It's being fruitful and multiplying whether or not you can do so biologically. So, so Jesus is basically saying, this is marriage. This no longer exists. This exists. Which, why, which is why he says the two become one. Marriage is a unity of people and purpose in a way that multiplies God's goodness. That's what marriage is. That's the ideal. That's the tops. That's the reason that it exists. (laughs) Marriage is a unity of people and purpose where God's goodness and glory being made known are the cause of existence. It's not primarily, let me throw this in, (laughs) it's not primarily a relationship meant to bring you warm romantic fuzzies that fulfill your childhood dreams. It's not primarily the relationship meant to provide for you safety and security 
in financial or material terms. Does it provide those? Sure. (laughs) But if those are primary and they take the place of the goodness of God being made known, you've upended God's creation. And you've made it about you. Which is where a lot of marriages are. Because a lot of people are there. And I know some of you are like, hey, where's the romance? Where's the fun? <laughs> Listen, marriage, if primarily about producing God's goodness in us, if that's the ideal of making known God's goodness and glory and what He's done in creation, let me tell you a little secret. <laughs> the secret is, when you do marriage God's way, all of those securities and safeties and needs will be met in ways better than otherwise. Your finances are better. Your happiness is more evident. There's more contentment. There's more security. Your sex life is better. Your sense of self is better. The purpose for who you are and why you exist is better. That's what happens when you do marriage with God's intent. Now, what happens if that breaks down? We're not going to answer all of that today. We're going to continue to hold up God's ideal God's intent, because that's what Jesus does here in Matthew 19. But let's look at this here in these verses. He has just laid down, he has basically just said, here's God's intent, here's the reason why marriage exists. And then he says this, after establishing all that, he lowers the boom, verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, in other words, not the state, marriage is God's idea, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not a piece of paper or a judge separate. And he's saying even more than that. This isn't really a statement about the state. This is a statement about upholding God's ideal. What God has made in its purpose with marriage, let not any man or woman separate. So they say, after he says, well, that's a pretty high ideal. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 7. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're focusing on the questions like we do. (laughs) When is divorce permissible? And Jesus focuses here on God's ideal. The Pharisees here sound a lot like us oftentimes. We're more, more worried about questions of, is it okay to divorce when this happens or when this happens or when she does or when he says? Those are not pretend issues. But Jesus here says, let's keep God's ideal forefront. They were focusing on, on it as a legal issue. When Jesus was focusing on marriage and divorce as a spiritual one, a matter of uh, the heart, matter of the heart and one's relationship with God. And so he says, verse 8, it was because of your hardness of heart, there's the spiritual issue there, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. Now notice that they said, verse 7, when, why did Moses command us? They've, they've misstated that actually. Moses didn't command it. He says and corrects them in verse 8, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not So, he says this, 
as a way to, to move beyond where the Pharisees were, to move beyond where Deuteronomy was, to go back to God's intent in the first place. He says, don't forget, don't forget verse 9. It's about God's intent. I go beyond that and I say to you, this is the new law, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Friends, what happens when, when, it, when it doesn't work as we intend, as we hope, as we expect, as we've been dreaming, as we've been praying, as we've worked for years and it doesn't happen, or, or, or we're many years in and it fails. I mean, no, nobody goes into the marriage thinking they're going to get divorced. And, and no one who's been through divorce thinks it's a good option. Like, like it's one that, that we want to go through. In some circumstances, it's a necessary option. But nobody goes into it thinking that it's, it's, it's a good or easy way uh, to deal with the situation. Friends, what do we do when it doesn't work? We become people who hold up God's ideal for marriage, which just is, is a way of saying is ideal for why we exist as individuals in the first place. And we also become a context where the brokenness of our lives is okay to talk about. Because that's how we learn to tell the story of God's work in our lives rightly. We're going to listen to a video here uh, from a woman in our congregation named Debbie, who's uh, marriage ended after 20 years. Not something she wanted or expected to happen, uh, but it ended up being um, necessary for her and her family. And while the intent didn't exactly happen as hoped, God used those 20 years for her and is continuing to use her experience so that she can continue to be someone who tells the story rightly. Let's listen to her experience now. Thanks for sharing, Debbie. I told folks from first service, Debbie and I are going to have a perfectionist's anonymous group <coughs> after second service if you want to join us. <coughs> Here's what we need to continue to realize, friends. No one tells the real story of their lives if it isn't from some vantage point of personal brokenness. doesn't matter if you've been through divorce or if it's something else. No one tells the real story of their lives unless it's from the vantage point of personal brokenness. <clears throat> One of the lessons we're learning in this series is that when we when we tell our life's story correctly from the vantage point of personal brokenness with the awareness that we have all fallen short of God's intent, God gets the glory. <laughs> it just happens to be noticed sometimes in certain situations. Divorce is kind of a public thing. It's just something that's perhaps more noticeable in those situations than perhaps yours. Uh, but don't th let that deceive you into dismissing your own experience of personal brokenness, whatever the story might be. You may not have struggled with the brokenness of divorce, but you struggle with the brokenness of something. 
And you only tell the story the right way with God getting the glory, with God getting the glory, if that's a piece of your story, your brokenness. So tell your story from that vantage point. Here's why. If you learn to do that, God will use you to tell the story of his holiness. That's why God's intent, his ideal, is in place. Because he alone deserves the praise from that kind of story. If you learn to tell who you've been and how God saved you, if you learn to talk about your life as the gospel with the turning point, then he will use your story to highlight his own holiness. That's why we're gathered here, friends. That's why we're here. So that we can understand rightly who we are, who God's called us to be. And we need to be a people in a place where God's intent for marriage and for our lives is that he receives glory, that his goodness is made known. Because friends, this isn't about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus and his glory. Because he's the one who died on the cross. He's the one whose perfect and sinless life lives for us, counts to call us as justified. That's the only story worth telling. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for all the ways in which we pervert our own stories to highlight our own goodness. For we know the joy and contentment that peace and security, that courage come from an awareness that it's your strength, that it's your power, that it's your goodness on which we stand. Lord, continue to teach us that truth. As we go from this place, continue to teach us that truth, Lord, so that we would tell the story in ways that give you praise and glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Real briefly, we want to invite you to respond to the good news that we've just talked about and prayed about. Um, The good news that not one of us stands unless it's on the goodness of Jesus' life lived for us. uh, That He took on Himself the wrath from God the Father that we deserved. We all stand as condemned sinners were it not for the cross of Christ. And so that's, that's a truth that changes everything for us. And so we want to invite you to respond to that in whatever way appropriate for you in, in your life and where you are on this journey with Jesus. If all this stuff about Jesus and sin and salvation is new for you and you're not sure maybe what your relationship with, with God is like, I would love to talk to you, ask questions. We want to be a safe place for that process uh, to begin. If perhaps you're more on this side, you've been a believer for a long time and and you're growing in faith, we trust that the Holy Spirit has continued to show you the ways in which uh, steps of faith help help you and and your family and your marriage and this body grow so that God receives glory, so that you're upholding God's intent in your life. Uh, If you're maybe 